And therefore, borders are not boundaries. Absolutely not. There's a lot of confusion. While borders are interpersonal, boundaries are individual. While borders are negotiated and compromised, boundaries are promulgated and declared unilaterally. A recent prime survey for England and Wales estimated that 4.5% of adults aged 16 to 59 years old had experienced partner abuse in the year, 72.6% of which were women and 57% were men reported non-physical forms of abuse. This begs the questions, do borders and boundaries always pertain to geopolitics? What are the borders and boundaries within a relationship? Where and when our emotional boundaries are violated, how can we navigate the space of protecting our own rights? From the University of Cambridge and Centre of Governance and Human Rights, my name is Nima, I'm your host for this episode, and this is Declarations. I also have with me in the studio, Dr. Mariam Tanbir, our previous host from the last season as a panelist who will be leading the discussion. She has been a lecturer for gender and development at the University of Cambridge, a gender consultant for the World Bank and United Nations, and she's currently working on a project to mitigate gender-based violence via behavioral interventions that break the gender stereotype. Mariam, thank you so much for being here with us. Great to be here, Nima. With that introduction, Mariam, I will quickly introduce our guest and give it over to you. Our guest today, we have Dr. Sam Vaknin, who is an Israeli writer and professor of psychology. He is the author of Malignant Self-Love, Narcissism Revisited, was also the last editor-in-chief of the now-defunct political news website, Global Politician, and runs a private website about narcissism personality disorder. He has also postulated a theory on chronons and time asymmetry. Thank you so much, Sam, for joining us today. It is an absolute honor to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's kind of you. Great to have you, Sam, back. Yes, uh, I this is becoming this is becoming a habit. I can get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely habit, I must say. So we have a very special episode of Declarations today. Uh, we're going to be exploring the borders and boundaries of intimate relationships, and in how many ways they can get violated. How difficult is it to maintain your dignity and self-respect, and not let your borders and boundaries be violated if you are in a mentally abusive relationship? And uh, what happens, the question is, when the person who's closest to us begins to violate our sense of self. So would you like to contribute uh, to this dialogue, Sam, and how many ways borders and boundaries of intimate relationships get violated? I think it would behoove us to uh, define borders, define boundaries, and then discuss intimacy and how psychopathology, um, mental health dysfunctioning, affects the ability to maintain intimacy, borders, and boundaries. Now, ostensibly and in the public mind, intimacy and boundaries sound like opposing ideas. Intimacy in the public mind is about merging, fusion, and becoming one with a loved one. This is the German, German idealist 
18th century romantic notion that prospered and flourished in the 19th century. And it is, of course, um, wrong. Love and intimacy are not about becoming one with an with a intimate partner. They are about boundaries and about separateness. We'll talk about it in a minute. Let's start with, uh, with borders. Borders are interpersonal. Borders are consensus-driven agreements regarding the regulation of common life with the intimate partner. So borders involve communication protocols, they involve rituals, daily rituals, they involve cultural and social mores imported into the diet, into the couple, and adopted by the couple, or rejected by the couple. That's equally important. So it's all intradiadic. In other words, it's all inside the couple. Borders are inside the couple. They are negotiated. They are the outcome of compromises and habits. And therefore, borders are not boundaries. Absolutely not. There's a lot of confusion. While borders are interpersonal, boundaries are individual. While borders are negotiated and compromised, Boundaries are promulgated and declared unilaterally, while borders reflect a series of routines and, and ways to manage the relationship, including communication protocols and so on, boundaries are about separating, separateness. So boundaries and borders are not the same. As I said, boundaries are individual. These are rules of conduct, which are declared unilaterally by each of the partners and whose intention is to ensure dignity, privacy, freedom, rights, and priorities of the partner. And these are communicated firmly, but not aggressively. There's a price list. If the other party, if the counterparty breaches or violates the boundary, there's a set of sanctions which also are declared in advance, a little like the criminal law. <laughs> and there is enforcement. There is enforcement of the boundary, which is consistent and fair, but unrelenting. And so boundaries are where you stop and your partner starts. Borders are where you as a couple stop and the world starts. <coughs> And this is the distinction between the two. And this leads, of course, to the issue of intimacy. Now, intimacy is mission impossible. Intimacy is the act of balancing two mutually exclusive and mutually contradictory sets of demands and expectations. The first one is vulnerability. In intimacy, you're supposed to expose your vulnerability. You're supposed to lower your defenses. You're supposed to disable your firewall. And so to allow someone in, um, all these things, your firewalls, your, your defenses, they're intended to ward off, to, to prevent unwanted and coercive attention. But in intimacy, you let someone in, and therefore you are vulnerable to attack if he so wishes. This is one set of requirements and demands of intimacy, that you should be defenseless, in effect. 
At the same time, at the same time, you're supposed to maintain your personal autonomy, agency, efficacy, and separateness from the partner. You're not supposed to merge with the partner. You're not supposed to fuse with the partner. You're not supposed to become one with the partner. This is sick. This is not love. This is dependency or worse. So you are supposed to insist in intimacy on boundaries. Boundaries define you, demarcate you, and protect you from merging and fusing with the partner. And how do you reconcile these two demands? On the one hand, to be totally naked in every possible way. And on the other hand, to be on, on your guard, to be boundaried, to be, to be uh, defended, to protect yourself. How, how do you reconcile these two? It's a huge problem and very few people are getting it right. There is what I call intimacy failure. In, 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 in current civilization, there is a massive pandemic of intimacy failure. I will give a clue as to when intimacy works. Intimacy works when your core identity is secure and stable and well, well constellated. When your sense of self-worth is internally regulated and stable, so your self-esteem and self-confidence don't depend on anyone from the outside. They're regulated from the inside. If you have this core, if you have this stability, if you have this self-regulation, internal regulation, if you have your boundaries, then you can afford to sometimes be unprotected, naked, defenseless, exposed, and vulnerable. If you don't have this core identity, if your identity is disturbed, we call it identity disturbance. If your sense of self-esteem and self-confidence and self-worth fluctuate and react, are reactive to outside input, then you would not be able to manage intimacy well. And because you are unable to manage intimacy well, you will opt for, for pathological alternatives like enmeshment, engulfment, fusion, merger. And we can discuss this maybe, um, if you wish, when we, we talk about dysfunctional relationships or relationships between dysfunctional people, which is a sub subcategory. Yeah, that's a general introduction to the whole thing. <laughs> How interesting. Nima, and all along we were thinking about true love that Rumi talks about, the fusion of two souls. So that's just for crazy minds, that love is just an ideal type. Uh, before we met you, I, Nima, had a different <laughs> conception of true love. But okay, I mean, let's, let's get practical and pragmatic and, and demarcate our boundaries and retain our self-identity. So uh, Sam, you've, you've had lots of experience with patients that you talk about. Uh, would you like to tell us in, in, in how many ways do you have they come to you when you've understood the various ways they have been violated, their boundaries? Uh, first of all, just to clarify, I'm not a licensed therapist. So I'm, uh, I, I know that. Yeah, I know people, that. People who come to me are clients. They're not patients. They come for counseling. Yes. This is just to get the legal stuff out of me. Yes. But of course, they tell me their stories, they confide in me, they're open to advice. And The thing is that people perceive as violation only very 
ostentatious behaviors. So if you sexually abuse someone, or if you beat up someone, or if you verbally abuse someone in, in, in you know, consistently, then they, they do feel, sometimes vaguely, <laughs> that there is something wrong going on. The thing is that all these behaviors that I've just mentioned, they're the tip of an iceberg. The iceberg of abuse is submerged, invisible, subtle, subterranean. And the vast majority of people are unable to discern it. They're, una they're unable to attribute the right label, to label correctly certain behaviors. So for example, a sense of humor could be abusive. Uh, blatant, blunt, sadistic honesty can be abusive. Honesty, which we extol and praise, could easily be abused or used as an abuse tool of abuse and manipulation. Gaslighting, tending to doubt your perception of reality, impute, implying that maybe something's wrong with you and, and with your judgment of the world and of others. If it can be done subtly, but it undermines you. Any attempt to negate your boundaries, however gentle, gently, however solicitously, um, overbearing, overbearing help and overbearing advice is a form of abuse. When you raise a child, pampering the child, smothering the child, idolizing the child, pedestalizing the child. These are forms of abuse because they don't allow the child to become an individual and interface with reality on its own terms. Instrumentalizing people, using treating people as functions or trying to cause them to, to fulfill some function. That's a form of abuse. Parentifying people, forcing people to become your mother or, or to become your father, <laughs> forcing them to become your parents. That's a form of abuse. And I can continue another two or three hours on a good day, on a bad day, <laughs> on a good day, five or six hours, because there are, there are hundreds of behaviors which are actually even way more abusive than beating someone up. When you beat someone up, there are signs left, there are traces of the abuse. So it's easy to convince others that you had been abused and thereby you, you create an ad hoc community of support around you. If you have a purple eye or a black eye, many people, your colleagues, your family, your friends, everyone, will, your neighbors will come to your help. Even I will come to your help, imagine. <laughs> but what do you do when there are a thousand paper cuts to your psyche? to your soul, if you wish. What do you do then? How do you prove the abuse? How do you convince people? They're the most horrendous, egregious types of abuse are silent. They're silent. And indeed, silence itself is a form of abuse. Just being silent. <laughs> Imagine I give you the silent treatment. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to you for four days. I didn't do anything. Did I beat you up? No. Did I sexually abuse you? No. <laughs> but I degenerate in your anxiety, for example. So this engenders anxiety. There are many behaviors that create 
psychopathological artifacts in other people and then use these psychopathological reactions as leverage to manipulate people and obtain certain goals. So I can induce in your anxiety and then I can leverage this anxiety to cause you to behave in ways which are beneficial to me. This is abuse. And I can continue on and on and on. The thing, is there, is there a single sentence? Is there a single definition of abuse? Because it's not very useful to provide, um, some, to provide everyone with a booklet of 783 pages about all the possible ways of abuse. Yeah. So is there a single sentence? Yes, I think there is actually. Whenever your separateness and your boundaries are not recognized and respected, this is abuse. End of story. I remember in your book that your Bible, Malignant Self-Love, you talk about this thousand paper cuts. And, you know, they really, thats it's a very poignant way of just, just showing the extent of abuse. And I work on gender-based violence in Pakistan, and I deal with these people who are come to these shelters who have been beaten up. But you're right. And then there's so many people and there's a whole community that looks after them. But nobody talks about this mental abuse, which at times is, is far more scarring. A slap is still, you have a slap and then you move on. Obviously, there's no excuse for it. But the mental abuse is actually also manifest in this stress and this post-traumatic stress disorder. And it actually alters your own identity. You, If I may interject before you continue. Because you, you raised the issue of mental abuse, and it's a very pertinent uh, issue. Um, mental abuse creates something that physical abuse does not. With one exception, sexual abuse. Sexual abuse is the only physical abuse that has the same effects as mental abuse. Mental abuse creates something called an internalization introjection. It's been identified in the, in the 20s and in in the 20s and 30s of the last century, um, and then expanded upon in the 50s and 60s. It's a process collectively known as identification. Internalization introjection simply means the abuser's voice becomes lodged in your mind. And then even when the abuser is physically gone from your life, this voice is still inside your mind and is still taunting you and tormenting you and abusing you. This is known as an introject. So this is something which happens only in mental abuse and sexual abuse. It's the only physical exception, but never happens if you're just, if someone just beats you up or mugs you or whatever. It happens only when you're exposed to something called entraining and only when you're exposed to repeated messages that reinforce each other time and again, minute by minute, day by day, week by week, month by month, until the abuser had become an internal object populating, inhabiting your mind. And then you become, you collude with the abuser. Then you become the abuser's best weapon because this voice inside your head victimizes you and victimizes you with your own co collaboration because it's your voice. It's a voice inside your head. And then the abuser is, dies or is gone or moves on to the next victim, but he's, he's all the time with you. He's still with you. This is very, very important to understand. In many ways, mental abuse is a lot more horrific than any form of physical abuse. 
And Sam, I've been, I used to work on this project. It was Women Against Violence project in Pakistan. And there, when the women who were abused, they used to go to this shelter and they were, there was all sort of provision for them, support for them. And the abuser was then also given this tracker. So he had to wear a tracker. So there was preventive measures. He was held responsible for the, for the physical abuse. The people, the people that you work on, that you write about, are they, can they, they're not even made responsible for the abuse. That is the point. So these people will continue to be abusers without any character assassination. Situation Sorry. is improving somewhat. Um, in some countries, not too many, uh, mind you, but it's starting. In some countries, um, there are rules against coercive control. Coercive, coercive control is uh, limiting your freedom uh, via threats or implied threats, or just limiting your freedom even by consensus or by agreement. And then using this to actually render you a zombie, to convert you into a robotic entity without will, wish, critical thinking, or anything. So this is coercive control. It's illegal in, for example, the United Kingdom. It's a crime. Um, but it's not illegal. It's not a crime. Even in advanced countries such as Canada. So there's still a long way to go. Another thing is that sexual, sexual assault rules, sexual assault laws, I'm sorry, including rape, rape laws, and so on, have been now rewritten so that consent is not the main issue. The main issue is the psychological ambience that led to the sex. So you could um, legally actually be committing rape just by creating an environment of coercion, fear, terror, and so on. So there is creeping recognition of the mental component of abuse and its outcomes. Mind you, these laws are very new, they're not precedents, and very, very not reinforced, not enforced, shall we say. But it's a question of time. I think people are beginning to, to understand that uh, mental abuse is as important as physical. I contributed to this also with my work on narcissistic abuse, which is a phrase that I coined. I was the first to describe narcissistic abuse. And that was in the early 90s. And I remember that people were flabbergasted. They, they asked, why do you need another type of abuse? I mean, why don't you just say abuse? And I said, because narcissistic abuse, the emphasis is on narcissistic, not on the abuse. The emphasis is on the mental health pathology that manifests through the abuse, very often not physically, actually overwhelmingly not physically. So narcissistic abuse is about the negation, vitiation, and annihilation of the intimate partner. That's as simple as that. If people were listening to this, this podcast and you are giving advice how to maintain boundaries and identity and respect and not be abused and what advice would you give to them if someone keeps testing your boundaries walk away if someone implies that your separateness autonomy and agency are bad wrong morally or otherwise unhealthy for the relationship make him feel uncomfortable walk away if someone takes away your dignity, 
for example, asks you to do things you don't want to do, and that includes insects, uh, walk away. If someone disrespects your privacy, insists on having the password to your phone, I don't know, disrespects your privacy, walk away. If someone restricts your freedom, definitely it's a big red sign. If someone doesn't allow you to exercise your rights, even if he recognizes your rights, but doesn't allow you to exercise, you definitely should walk away. And, and finally, your priorities should prevail. Of course, to be in a couple or in any relationship, even in the workplace, it involves compromise and negotiation. Absolutely. But ultimately, you should prevail. You should be, you should be the focus of your love. You self-love is a precondition for other love, for object relations. And I think we are living in an age of deficit of self-love. People, people mistake, people mistake narcissism for self-love. People mistake self-centeredness for self-love. People mistake egotism for self-love. But self-love has nothing to do with any of these things. Actually, they are polar opposites. But I think we don't love ourselves enough. Anyone who doesn't allow you to love yourself, walk away. Some these people who are doing this abuse, are they aware of their own mistakes they are making or are they just ruled by these cognitive heuristics where they find their rationality for every for their behavior and they think that they're always right? Is there any part of them that that feels responsible that they are abusers? The vast majority of abusers are egosyntonic. In other words, they they feel good with what they do. They rationalize it, yes. They could say, you know, I'm treating you this way for your own good. It's tough love. I'm giving you tough love. Or they're telling you you're immature and, and I'm letting you grow up. I'm allowing you to grow up, you know. <laughs> or, they can, or they can tell you you're naive. You don't know the world the way I do. You need protection. I'm protecting you. <laughs> Etc. So they create a narrative which renders their actions morally palatable and commendable and render you helpless, defenseless, in need, and therefore the beneficiary of the abuse. The abuse is cast as a favor done to you. You should be grateful. <laughs> and <laughs> and any, any objection or any attempt to refuse the offering of abuse is perceived as ingratitude. Ingratitude and worse and worse, maybe callousness, maybe egotism, maybe. So the answer to your question is the it's you would be hard pressed to find an abuser who would consider what he's doing a mistake. That's value judgment. Many abusers are actually very proud of who they are. So narcissists, for example, are, are emotionally invested. They are cathected. They're emotionally invested in their disorder. A narcissist would tell you. The way I am, abrasive, antisocial, obnoxious, the way I am, that's an evolutionary adaptation. That's an advantage that renders me the next version of humanity. I'm human being 2.0, you know, I'm the next phase. So they're very proud of their narcissism. They, they can say, yeah, I can be objectionable, I can be rough, I can be impolite, but I get things done. Or I'm just being honest. 
I'm just being honest. I'm saying what everyone thinks and doesn't dare to say, etc. So narcissists will always be proud of the way they comport and conduct themselves. Psychopaths, by the way, have a different defense that's known as alloplastic defense. So a psychopath would say, uh, I stole her money because she was careless. She had it coming. Why, why didn't she, why wasn't she more careful? Or I absconded with this old couple's pension because they were stupid and gullible. Or I, I raped this woman because she was, or didn't rape, I had sex with her, for which she should be grateful, of course, because she was drunk and flirtatious and wore skimpy clothing. So the psychopath would always come up with, it was someone else's fault. Or they victimized themselves by not, by not taking care of their own interests. And I, I just happened to be there and take advantage of the situation, which anyone would have done, you know. So that's a different defense to the narcissist. The narcissist pretends to be charitable, altruistic, a leader, a communal contributor. The narcissist will always cast himself in, in the role of a giver and a victim, misunderstood, misjudged, and discriminated against. The psychopath doesn't go that low. <laughs> the psychopath simply says, if you're there and you're stupid enough to fall victim, then I'm going to victimize you. Because if it's not me, someone else will. So it's up to you whether you become a victim or not. I have nothing to do with it. Sam, I think Nima has a question for us. Yeah, uh, Sam, I, I think you touched on some very key points and you talked about how self-love is something that we need a lot more these days and how it also a little bit about evolutionary behavior. So it kind of made me wonder, given the current digital landscape and how things are evolving at such a rapid pace, in your experience, what have you seen the evolutionary behavior of abuse like transform into? And, um, you know, do you have any insights on how in this more digital landscape, how we can protect ourselves as well? The evolving digital landscape has one clear trend, and that is detachment from reality. The forthcoming metaverse will provide um, an all-containing, all-holding environment, self-sufficient, self-contained. No need to exit that environment. You could work in the metaverse. You could do shopping in the metaverse. You could even have sex in the metaverse. So the metaverse will, will provide you with a, a total solution. Um, we, have, we have come up with total solutions in the past. For example, prison. A prison is total, a total solution. A hospital is a total solution. These are known as total institutions. So the digital world is a prison and a hospital combined, combined, because they impair the digital, the, all the digital environment impairs our reality testing, affects badly our ability to perceive reality and navigate in it in order to become self-efficacious and substitutes human interaction with symbol interaction paid for with the currency of attention. So we are becoming more and more abstract, less and less real, and more and more abstract. Therefore, we are unable to perceive other people 
as three-dimensional entities. We are beginning to perceive other people as two-dimensional renditions, kind of avatars. And you can't separate. You can't say, okay, I'm going to perceive only other people as two-dimensional symbols. And I'm going to perceive myself as a full-fledged human being. You can't do that. The Your brain, the minute your brain begins to perceive others as pixels, you will have you will have become a pixel yourself. So this is internalized. The whole digital environment is internalized. And we begin to perceive ourselves not as subjects, but as objects. We are being, in the phrase of uh, Louis Althusser, we are being interpolated. Interpolation in Althusser's work is simply when you adopt external expectations as, as your own and external uh, realities as your own. So the digital environment uh, tra transforms you into a figment. And as a figment, you interact with other figments symbolically, and the whole thing becomes surreal. Surreal in French means above reality, not reality. So it's a dreamscape, and it's known in psychology as paracosm. Paracosm is this, the word in psychology for virtual reality. It's a bad, bad trend, exceedingly worrying, because the best definition that I'm aware of, of psychopathology, is divorce from reality. Narcissism is a divorce from reality. Psychotic disorders, psychotics, are divorced from reality. Borderlines are divorced from reality. Paranoids are divorced from reality. Mental illness is the state of being divorced from reality. So, if there is a technology that helps you to become divorced from reality, that actually makes it a condition, then of course this technology makes you mentally ill, by definition. Ex definitio. Another thing, and I will finish with this answer, with, with this observation. Digital technologies don't want you to have intimacy. They are enemies of intimacy. I can prove it to you very easily. I can prove it to you extremely easily. If you have a boyfriend, you're going to spend time with a boyfriend. And this time, you're not going to surf the internet. You're not going to go on Facebook. You're not going to go on Instagram. You're not going to go on TikTok. You're going to be with your boyfriend. This impacts the bottom line of Facebook in a bad way. Facebook hates your boyfriend. They hate your boyfriend because your boyfriend takes you away from Facebook. Your daughter takes you away from Facebook. Your mother takes you away from Facebook. Your neighbor, your friend, your best friend, your co-workers, other human beings take you away from Twitter and Facebook and so on. Social media, the business model of social media is built, constructed on isolating you, making sure that you don't have any other person in your life so that they can monetize your eyeballs and attention maximally. Because any minute you give to another human being is a minute taken away from Mark Zuckerberg and his income.
Sam, it was such a pleasure having you again. I just love the, your nuanced understanding on all of these various kinds of narcissism and psychopathy. And I've listened to so many of your websites, but you are like so far above the 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 rest. That there's there's no match. Nobody else is a patch on you. Big fan. Big fan. I'm, I'm blushing, but you can't see. <laughs> no, I can see. Hope to connect with you again soon. And Neema, thank you so much. This was a great pleasure. Thank you both of you. Thank you.